students around the world are finishing their qualifications so they can get ahead in life and make their contribution. If you are studying, researching or thinking about it, you will need practical tips, techniques, coaching and support to help you get finished and be successful. I'm Peter Alkema, the Student Success Coach and welcome to the podcast. Each episode I interview successful students and leaders in education so that you will learn everything you need right here. You will learn about writing, completing your thesis and other projects, planning, discipline, how to get more done, supervisors, getting published, getting finished, how to have the right discipline and many other aspects of student life. Whether you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, Google or any other podcast platform, please leave a rating and a review or if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe and leave a comment. Either way, please get in touch and let us know what you think of the show and what you want to hear more of. Please always check the show notes for links to courses, material and plenty more so that you can use what you've learned in each episode, take action and achieve your student success. Please also join the Student Success Coach community in our exclusive members-only Facebook group where I post regularly and you can interact with fellow students just like yourself. Remember, you can't do this alone, so reach out, get involved and take advantage. It's my commitment to your success. Now for this week's episode. Yes. Professor Carmichael, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. It is really a privilege and an honor um, to both see you again and to have this time to you know, get your thoughts on student success. And just by, maybe by way of introduction to our listeners, and we'll have a whole range of uh, students uh, listening in today, both undergraduate, postgraduate, uh, or people thinking about getting into studies, etc. Maybe you could just give us some introduction to your long and distinguished career and studies um, and how that started out and what it consisted of and where you've got to today. So, so give us just a wonderful introduction to yourself, Professor Carmichael. Right, thanks, Peter. Yeah, um, well, of course, I've got to think back uh, quite a long time. I, I was actually a very late entrant into the world. Um, you know, I'd, I'd done all my education, my primary education up in Zimbabwe and came to South Africa in 1980 and went into business and I was a medical rep and went into marketing and so on. And it was actually only when my husband decided to do his second master's because he's been an academic for, for many years and he wanted to do a master's in statistics. So I thought, well, you know, if, if he's going to study, then, you know, I might as well study something at the same time. Otherwise, I'm going to be all lonely. And I registered at Fitz Business School to do a Master's of Management in Human Resources, which existed at the time. It doesn't exist um, anymore, but I believe they are starting to, to look at new master's degrees, specialist master's degrees. So... I started with the MMHR in 2003 as a mature student and as I was going through the course they actually needed a, a new staff member 
so they recruited me and I went through the whole process of being interviewed and everything. And I actually joined the business school as a staff member shortly before I finished my master's. And of course, a, a permanent appointment was contingent on me getting the master's. So I, I really did that in 2004. And, and then pretty much went straight into working towards my PhD. Of course, it is pretty obligatory to have a PhD if you're going to be a, a serious academic. And, you know, I would normally discourage students from going straight from a master's into a doctorate. But because I'd already had um, 22 odd years of working in the private sector, I could actually do that. Um, you know, if you if you go straight from undergrad into a master's into a PhD, you tend to wind up overqualified and underexperienced, and it becomes very difficult to find a job because people can't afford to pay you because you're too mm. highly qualified, and and yet you don't have any experience, and and that really is more of a barrier than than one might imagine. So. I got stuck into the PhD and I was lucky enough because I was at the business school already and not everyone has this opportunity. They gave me space to do the studies. I, I had a workload allowance to do the PhD um, mm. and, and that made such a huge difference. And then I got a, um, a bursary, um, sorry, a sabbatical scholarship for six months. And with that, which was really to allow me to finish the PhD. And um, so I was able to travel. I went to the UK. I spent six weeks in the UK, went around, visited specialists in my area, did lots of interviews, lots of investigating. And that really did enable me to complete the PhD, which I did in 2007. So, yeah, here I am. I've stayed at the business school ever since then. And I've been here just coming up for my 18th year and just pushed through the academic process. And it, what they say about publish or perish is true. So I just got on with it and published and wrote articles and conferences, networked. Um, one of the nicest parts has actually been um, co-authoring articles with the students I've been supervising. And we've done a lot of work like that. So I always get my students to move towards and think about publishing from their study. And, and that way they learn to think more critically earlier and we both get the benefit of having a, a publication out of it. I especially like it when you do a conference paper because yes, yes. we can usually get funding for that. And um, there's always a good trip in the offing. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's been great. I've taken one of my students to Mauritius and um, I would have taken another one to Portugal this year, but it was an online conference because of the pandemic, <laughs> unfortunately. 
I, I can relate to that, Terry, and I was just on the webinar now and telling everybody, just giving them an introduction, that I had spent four years of my PhD looking forward to walking across the stage at the Witz Great Hall to receive yes. my degree, but um, due to the lockdowns in 2020, I had a, a graduation from home with my family, which was equally as special, but it didn't quite match what I had visualized mm. during my degree. So, mm. so as you say, these things do change and adapt. Um, but uh, Prof, I, I wanted to just dive in a little bit to just your experience, um, you know, having been, uh, as you said, the business school for 18 years, having worked with a lot of students and encouraging a lot of them to write papers. And I count myself as one of those. You were instrumental in my PhD. And I think just now let's get into a little bit of what you do specialize in, um, the qualitative methods and the grounded theory, et cetera. And that'll be a really interesting topic uh, to talk about just now. But I've certainly seen your efforts and support to myself and to a number of other students that I've interacted in. And what I'm keen to, to, to try and, you know, tease out from our discussion is is what the difference is that you see in the students that manage to publish you know manage to get through their degrees manage to be successful you know i i really am passionate about increasing student success i know you've even published mm -hmm. about the statistics of students that drop out from postgraduate studies and it's a lot higher than we would like it to be so so, yeah. so, so maybe from your long and you know distinguished career and involvement with students, what are those things that students can do better and the practical tips and techniques that they can work on today if they're listening to improve their chances of being successful? Absolutely. Well, that has become so important to me that it's actually become one of the main areas of my own research. And as I go through the process of supervising and wrestling with problems, um, because I wrestle as much as problems, and I, I take a very uh, joint problem-solving approach and a co-creation of knowledge approach to, to supervision. And by doing it like that, I, I really need the students to come to me talk to me, let's brainstorm through whatever issues they're going through, and let's let's come up with a solution. Um, I've had some students who, who simply won't communicate with me, um, despite me almost groveling on the floor to beg them to come <laughs> and just talk to me. And, and the, the one lady said, I'll contact you when I've got something to say. And, and that absolutely devastated me. And in my response was, we need to talk about the fact that you haven't got anything to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that really has been a problem and an ongoing problem because I still have not managed to persuade her to talk to me. And I, I really am completely stuck at the moment as to as to how to actually move forward with her. Um, so yes, I'm, I don't have all the answers by by a long shot, but there are certainly quite a few things that I've picked up along along the way, and I've 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 drawn up a kind of a list of thoughts, and I will go through that sort of raise the issues 
and hopefully provide some answers for students to move forward with. So just, just thinking of common problems. Um, so the, the one thing is that students often don't understand what they want to take on. Um, it's, it's, education is so important, but people, once they get through their first degree, they sometimes get into this phase of thinking, it would be nice to have a doctorate. And, and that isn't strong enough to do a doctorate. You really need a passionate and burning desire to find out why something happens the way it does or, or why something doesn't happen the way it should. Or something they really, really need to find out about and understand better or understand differently. So I would certainly expect a, a student wanting to go into particularly a doctorate to come to me with fire in their eyes and they've got to find the answer to this thing that they're passionate about. I can't deal with a student who comes and says, I want to do a doctorate, please tell me what to study. That, that's never going to work. That won't even get off the ground. A doctorate belongs to the student and they need to be completely passionate about it and they will find a way of doing it come what may. So I will never tell a student what to study. It's their doctorate, it's their master's degree, and they need to own it. The, the thing with the degree at the higher levels is that it, it becomes part of your identity and you need to want that identity because it's going to stick with you. Whatever the title or topic of your master's or, or doctorate, that is going to become a label. And people are going to say, oh, go and ask old Pete, you know, he's he's the, the expert mm -hmm. on, on agile methods and doing grounded theory and agile methods. He's the guy who knows. And you better live up to that because people are going <laughs> no to- No pressure, eh? <laughs> Well, it's it's true, and and the thing is that people don't realise is how knowledgeable you have to be beyond the direct area of your study. So, and as I say to people a lot, you've got to love reading because you're going to do a lot of reading, and at least ninety percent of what you read will be rubbish, not applicable or fake news. Mm. And you have to read all that stuff in order to be able to sift out what makes sense, what is genuine, what is as close to the truth as possible. Or as I say, alternatively, um, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince or princess, right. as the case may be. You need to read and read and read and read. And I'll get into that a little bit later about how one can actually tackle this. You know, if, you, if you're if you a graduate and you're at a big board meeting or you're now an international expert on something, people will challenge you all the time. And 
they'll throw things at you. Yeah, but you know, your your doctorate actually didn't cover the area of some particular thing. Mm. Or haven't you read that paper by the other big expert who refutes what you said completely? Mm. Now, you need to know about those other papers. You need to have read them and you need to know why those other papers do not actually refute what you found in your in your doctorate. You've got to keep on top of it all the time. Just because you get the bit of paper, you don't stop learning. You continue learning all the time. So as a as a word of preparation for anybody wanting to to do a higher degree, you need to learn to read. And okay. it really helps if um, you were brought up loving books. And I know there are a lot of people in South Africa who were not. Um, they may not have had books, they may not have been able to afford books. And, and that is one of the biggest tragedies that we have. For people in that situation, learn to read and learn to love reading. That, yeah. that is such an important aspect. And, and, and Prof, maybe just to pause on that one, because I think it is a very power. It came up in another interview on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. A lady actually got a distinction in her master's and mm. I asked her what her secret for success was. And straight away, she says, I read everything I could get my hands on. Mm. Um, and that helped just get the sense of it. And then she narrowed it down into the right topic. What exactly. I want maybe just to explore with you quickly is in the academic world, obviously articles are structured in a certain way. And if you have a better understanding of that, you know what to get out of each section of that article, whether mm. it's the abstract or the introduction or the conclusion, etc., that then gives you the quickest possible route to what you need to get from that article, whether you should go mm. deeper into it or whether you should file it into your reference library, etc. And I think some students are also intimidated by thinking they have to read every word of every article and, you know, with a culture of not so much reading and maybe not in their first language, you know, there's those issues that I think people don't quite understand how to properly engage with academic literature. Your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I'm quite tempted to show my slide of the academic process. So I'm going to try and do that um, because the academic process is, is what one would follow when doing one, one's own research, but actually articles are structured in a very similar kind of a way. So let me see if I can actually do this without messing it up. Right, I am going to share my screen. And of course, for everybody listening on the podcast today, you'll need to hop over to the YouTube channel to view this uh, interview. Um, but I'm sure that Professor Carmichael will also just narrate uh, what we're going to learn from this academic process now with regards to how it will help you engage with the academic literature and how it will help you see articles as something to assist you. Um, in your postgraduate studies rather than a massive hurdle of a lot of reading that you need to get through. And there are obviously going to be the critical articles that are fundamental to your study, which you will have to spend a lot more time on. But if you can 
engage with the literature properly, and maybe this is what we're going to learn now uh, from Professor Carmichael, then you'll feel a lot more empowered um, as you approach the literature. So Prof Carmichael, mm. over to you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to show you this one slide which will come up in portions. And um, I have to tell you, it worked. It, it took me about 18 years to figure this out and get the process down to the absolute bare bones of it. It is fairly simplistic, and um, I dare say a lot of people might critique it for being too simplistic and overgeneralized. But when I got this, it, it really helped me think about research in, in a structured way. Okay, so in essence, the first thing that one does is one asks research questions. And these might be in the form of um, a problem statement or an objective. I like to think of them as research questions. And the research question is a question that I, the researcher, am going to try and answer through my own research. And whether you're doing a bachelor's or honors or master's or doctorate, this is a pretty good place to start. What question do I want answered? And like anything else, when I have a question, the first thing I do, and I'm sure um, a lot of people listening do exactly the same, we go onto Google. We go onto the internet and try and look for some answers. So that's what I will do. I will go and get some answers from the literature. And in articles and in our research projects, that's called a literature review. So now I've got one set of answers, but I'm not entirely satisfied with that. And so what I'll do is I'll actually say, OK, well, I want to do my own research and find my own answers. I've got the answers from the literature, but I'm going to actually find out for myself. So I design a study and that would be the methodology section of, a, of an article or chapter of the research project. So I'm going to do that and I do my own study. I carry it out, I analyze it, I find some answers and now I've got answers from my own study in my own context, in, in the area that I'm working, the group of people I've selected. So now I've got two sets of answers. I've got some answers from the literature and I have some answers from my own study. Now the trick is to compare the answers. And there will be some things in the literature that are not, that I didn't find in my own study. And there will be some things from my own study that were not in the literature. And the differences between what's in the literature and what I found out for myself is my contribution to knowledge. And right. that is where you make a big deal out of your findings. This is the significance of your research. This is how you have added to the literature mm. and I, I just found that this really helped me to, to 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 get the whole purpose of of the study um and the approach and it does help one i'm going to close this now 
And it does help to um, think of it like this, because then when you're reading somebody else's work, you know what kind of things are going to be under each one of those headings. Yeah. And that is more or less what you will find in an article or in a research project. Wonderful. Prof, I think that is just absolutely brilliant. And um, how you've laid that out for, the, for, for, for students to have a look at and as you've explained it for people to, to listen to. And as you say, I guess, you know, it takes a long time, you know, to really apply one's mind to these things. And ultimately, if you can package it and if you, as you have done for us today, in that sort of, you know, easy to understand approach. And really, I think that's then where students, hopefully, and, and as they listen in today, are able to identify the role they play in how we increase knowledge in the world today. Mm -hmm. And then the role of the research questions and their interaction with the literature and back to the importance of reading and widely and understanding the academic uh, literature um, that's out there. So, and then, and Prof, maybe, uh, you know, let's just sort of change gears a little bit. Um, I mean, you've obviously seen a lot of students over the years, certainly at a postgraduate level and in a, in a business context, and we've spoken a bit about the importance of having some experience from a business perspective. I mean, I finished my, my bachelor's of engineering and I was going to sign up to do an MBA the next year and um, the lecturers said please don't you're going to waste your time mm -hmm. and hours <laughs> and i was yeah, i was devastated sure. and they said look just maybe do a master's in engineering carry on doing that do it part-time etc and it was the best advice you know i've there's mm -hmm. a lot of advice that i haven't taken in my life which you know it was unfortunate but that advice i took i didn't do my mba straight away but but mm -hmm. terry prof dealing with you know part-time students who are possibly also have big jobs and in the corporate life and world, et cetera, and obviously coming into the business school to ground themselves and to research in a specific topic and find their contribution as we've spoken about now. In terms of work-life study balance and habits of <laughs> getting things done and managing a, a higher level of workload, what are your thoughts and advice for how students, particularly the part-time students potentially listening in today, could think about and apply even from tomorrow, Yes, well, you've highlighted an enormously important aspect of study and and the time is definitely a huge barrier. One thing that people are not necessarily that aware of is how how much time actually goes into these these qualifications. So just to give you um, a, an, an idea. And the numbers I'm going to give you are legislated, funny enough. Um, the government has given parameters and criteria for each different level of degree so that we know how much to put into it in order to get the degree. So just focusing only on the research component. For an honours degree, there are 30 credits allocated to the research portion. And each credit is worth three is, is worth um, 10, 10 hours. So a credit is 300 hours of work. Now, those hours are called notional hours, and they include every single minute that you spend on that research study. 
It's your reading. It's your consultation time with your supervisor. It's writing. It's doing the research. Everything that goes into that for an honours degree will take approximately 300 hours. Okay. For a master's degree, um, well, sorry, just to go back, for an honours degree, the research component is to prepare students for research-based postgraduate study. Now for a master's degree, the main purpose of a master's is so that people can learn how to conduct a research study. So they don't have to make a huge original contribution to knowledge, but they do need to learn to perform decent, systematic, logical, ethical research. Now, for a master's degree, you can do a master's either by 100% research or by uh, coursework and research. So if it's by 100% research, it's 120 credits or 1,200 um, 1200 hours. Normally for coursework plus research masters, it would be 60 credits or 600 hours. So that's quite a lot of hours to find. For a doctorate, now you need to make a significant contribution to knowledge. And a doctorate is 360 credits or 3,600 hours. It'll probably take longer than that. Um, you know, people tend to say, well, it's probably actually going to be closer to four or five thousand hours. And and if you break that down over, um, say, a four year part time degree period, you're going to find that you need to spend maybe 20 or 30 hours a week. On your PhD reading, writing, studying, consulting, carrying out the research. Without really breaking down that amount of time and saying, where am I going to get that time from? Mm. I promise you, you cannot simply add it on to what you're already doing. And if you're anything like most people, you're already overcommitted. Yes. And of course, it's it's particularly hard. Uh, the, the, this COVID year has been unbelievably hard on, for example, young parents mm. who are holding down a full time job, trying to educate their children in many cases, possibly dealing with family members who may not be that well. Parents might be living with them. I, I, I simply cannot even imagine how people in those conditions and circumstances have managed this process. Hopefully next year will be better and we will be able to manage our time without so much disruption. But because there is so much time required, people are going to need to have to negotiate that time allowance. And you mentioned work-life balance. One of the first things I say to students is forget it. There's no such thing as work-life balance while you're doing a PhD or a doctorate or even a master's. The negotiation that needs to take place is, is around sort of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. 
So I believe in 50-50 give or taker, but things are going to need to be a little bit skewed while people are doing their degree. When you're doing your degree, you are going to have to be in the mode of taker. And you're going to ask your partner to be the giver. Now, if you can get that agreement going and and you can treat your doctorate or your your masters like a project with a beginning, a middle and an end. The more time you can focus on getting that project done, the more likely you are to finish in the minimum time of, say, four years for a part time doctorate. And if your partner allows you that time, takes the children out of out of the house for a bit um, allows you to not watch television, allows you to not go to parties so that you can work on that degree, then you will finish your qualification and walk across the stage, which is what you really need to do in the minimum time. But now at the end of that time, the roles must reverse. You promised payback. So yeah. now for the next however long, might be four years, you need to be the giver. Right. And that means allowing your partner to do what they want to do. They might want to do a degree. They just might want to be molly coddled. They might want to go to a spa with their friends. Yes. You need to you need to be absolutely sure that you pay back that give or taker so that you get back to 50%. Right. And so on, on balance overall, you correct that balance, yes. not on a daily or a weekly or even on a yearly basis, but maybe when you look back at a, a period of five or six years, there was those three or four years that was tough on the family because, you know, yeah. mom or dad was doing their PhD or their doctorate or their mm -hmm. master's, whatever it was. But then we remember yeah. those three or four other years where, you know, mom or dad was around and we did all those extra things and we made up for some of that lost time. And mom or dad were happy um, and they were a better mom and dad and maybe they earned more money for all of us because they got that that qualification. So so that balance, as you say, is over time. Yes, and and people people are less grumpy generally, and that's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, Professor, yeah, but I think that, yeah. The, just the caution is, if something really important happens in the personal relationship space, then you might need to drop something with the PhD to look after that. Because if that personal relationship reaches breaking point, then it may not recover. Yeah. So at the end of the day, that is actually the most important relationship of all. Okay. And it's constant negotiation. And, and even at work, you're going to need to negotiate time from work to fit in those 3,000 or 4,000 hours. Yeah. You can't just add it on. And the same story, if work gives you the space, yeah. gives you the allowance, lets you work from home for whatever days of the week or Fridays or Mondays or something, then you can get it done you can get back to work and you can be a more productive and um, better decision-making employee. Mm. 
And I think I think something that people don't do enough of is actually take their study leave. I think that people get yes. caught up in this belief that they have to be at work every day, they might miss out, and now they have to cram it in, as you say, in the nights and the weekends, and then they compromise the family situation, whereas actually mm -hmm. work was saying, you've got study leave, yeah. we accept that many of our employees are going to study, but you have to make a conscious decision that you choose the days that are going to have the least amount of impact, and it's not always possible, but mm -hmm. which we will survive without you on those days. Work is going to carry on, and if we really need you, we know how to get in touch with you, but mm -hmm. take the day when yeah. you're fresh on a Monday morning, you know, like I did, and some of the writing retreats yes. that you ran, which were very successful and important, you know, for the success of my PhD, but they were obviously during the week, and I mm -hmm. took study leave to attend them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, we're not as indispensable as we like to think we are. <laughs> exactly. We suffer under that delusion that we have to always be needed. And, and that's where we get our affirmation from. Prof, I, I just as we said earlier, I wanted to get into a little bit of your man. You've got many areas of speciality, but the one where we sort of, uh, you know, I benefited from your insights over the years was the qualitative research methods. And then, as you mentioned, I did grounded theory. Um, learned a lot by doing and by talking to you and many other experts, etc. But I hear more and more of people, you know, either contemplating or in the middle of a grounded theory study. And maybe we could spend a few minutes on your thoughts about, and I think this probably deserves an entire interview and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, an entire course at some point on grounded theory. But, and I know we can't, we can't do justice to it in a, in a short, you know, question and answer, but you know, your thoughts on grounded theory and its increased popularity and advice for people thinking about it or in the middle of it? Yes. Um, you know, with, with most research and certainly what I've just shown you in the in the graphic is that one would normally ask a research question and then go and look in the in the literature for some answers. Now, there's a problem with that, <clears throat> and and that is that we tend to reinforce what is already known and published. There's there's quite a um, divide between thinking about quantitative research and qualitative research, and I'm actually going to show you another one of my little pictures. Um, let me actually get that up. And we can just run through another one of those images. And let me just find this. So okay. as you're getting that up, Prof, I mean, you know, once again, I think people listening in, uh, you know, hop over to the YouTube channel because it's going to be so valuable for you to be able to see this. And uh, from uh, Professor Carmichael's decades of experience in grappling with these issues and particularly grounded theory uh, would be worthwhile for you to have a look at this but equally we will talk it through if you're listening on the podcast okay so right oops not that one okay so Sorry, I've disappeared. Right, there we go. Okay, so qualitative research and quantitative research are complementary to one another. 
there's a bit of a um, default way of thinking about quantitative research being the superior kind of research. And if you do quantitative research in a good structured solid systematic way, then it becomes generalizable and uh, people like that. However, what happens with qualitative research, which takes a slightly different approach, is that people don't like it because it's not, um, it's not seen to be rigorous, it's seen to be a bit biased, it is, it is seen to be inferior in many ways to quantitative research. But the problem is that people are actually judging qualitative research with quantitative criteria. So what I've done in this diagram is I'm just trying to show how the two two the, the two sides of the of the of the same coin actually these different kinds of research. So for qualitative research, what we do is we don't go for a random sample. We go for a small number of experts in a particular area. So if we want to find people who have done, say, agile work in agile organizations, we don't want to test anything, but we want to pick the brains of the best people that we can find. People who are experienced, they know what they're doing, they've worked with it, they've grappled with it, and they're really, really experienced in this area. So we're going to handpick those people. It's not biased. It's choosing people according to very specific criteria. And the opposite of that, on the quantitative side, that's where we look for representative samples. We look for a broad range of people and we're actually going to try and generalize from those findings. We're not going to try and generalize from the qualitative findings. We're going to interview these people, these qualitatively selected people, to get rich, deep detail. We're going to probe. We want to identify the concepts and the variables that they are exposed to. We're going to have interviews that might last an hour or an hour and a half. We're going to ask for clarification. We're going to ask for examples. And we're going to get all that rich detail. And from that rich detail, we're actually going to construct propositions or hypotheses about the topic that we actually studying. Now for a qualitative study, the end point is those propositions or hypotheses that they're going to generate from speaking in depth to experts. That's absolutely fine as an end point, but we mustn't criticize it for not being generalizable as it stands. What we're going to do then is we're going to take our hypotheses and propositions and hand them over to the quantitative researchers and ask them to test them. So they can now take that as a starting point and then they can go and 
randomly select many representative bodies, give them a questionnaire, and test whether our theory that we developed here is actually generalizable. So qualitative research will generate testable hypotheses or propositions. This is what we think is going to be the case based on these experts we've interviewed. Now you go and test those. So the, the two are very much complementary. And grounded theory, you asked about grounded theory, um, actually goes even beyond that because we don't actually read the literature and base our questions. Sorry, I just need to stop sharing here. Um, and base the questions we want to interview the people with based on the literature, we, we're actually going to ignore the literature for grounded theory. And that is because we don't want to have preconceived ideas in our minds. I've got one student who's studying um, transfer of learning amongst the millennial generation in the manufacturing sector. And I said to her, but there's a lot of literature written on that. You know, what are you going to find out that's new? And her answer was, I know there's a lot of literature, but I think it's all wrong for South Africa and for young African millennials working in the manufacturing sector. I think that they learn differently. And the only way I'm going to find out about that is if I completely ignore all the theory that's already published and I go and ask them what's going on. And that made complete sense. So she has not read literature. She's tried to forget as far as possible what she already knew and given that we can't forget entirely, but she's asking deep, open-ended questions. How did you learn that? Where did you go? Who influenced you? What made you remember? What made you forget? How do you talk to each other? And I can't wait to see what she comes up with. But with grounded theory, that's what you do. So you're going to formulate your propositions and hypotheses based purely on the information you get from the people that have, that have been part of the respondents. Once you've got that data and you've analyzed it and you've formed your theories, now you're going to look in the literature and you're going to see if there's anything already published in the literature that actually fits with what you have developed. And you're going to integrate your findings with the literature and show how you have actually contributed to the literature from scratch. It's not building on somebody else's theory, it is from scratch. And that really is one of the big differences between qualitative research that's kind of semi-structured and grounded theory type qualitative research, which is uh, what I like to think of as an extreme form mm. of qualitative research. Yep. That is so helpful, the, Professor. It's called grounded theory because the findings are grounded in the data 
they are emphatically not grounded in the literature. And a lot of people have a huge difficulty in ignoring the literature going into a grounded theory study. So no. I just wanted to make that point. No, point, point very well made. Um, and I only really understood that when I went through it. And although I had done a little bit of, I would say, high level literature review, just to maybe mm. be better researched and knowledgeable for my yes. interviews. And to be, only, right yeah, to, to be able to ask the right questions. To be able to ask the right questions. So there is that. Um, and once I had then, you know, developed a theory which was grounded in the data, and uh, you're quite familiar with my study, it yes. was only through the lens of that theoretical framework that I was able to properly engage the literature and understand how it all fitted in to the theoretical basis that I had developed and mm. do what in grounded theory I think is often called a follow-up literature review, which actually goes in your last section of your thesis, yes. which is totally counterintuitive. Yes. But which you... It's all back. Yeah, it's all back to front. And which, which I only understood was because I was developing a theory in my study, I didn't have a theoretical basis through which to query the literature. It was only when I developed the theory that I had the right framework to view and assess the literature, but then to bring it in mm. in support of or in conflict with the theory that I had developed. Yeah. And so yeah, I think exactly. you know, it, it, the irony is you, you, you only become a ground, you only become knowledgeable about grounded theory once you've done grounded theory. So it's, yeah, it's very much it, a it, lot of learning by doing. How, how do we help students get confidence going into grounded theory? Well, it really helps if they've got a supervisor who's bumped their head before, because it is difficult to get into. Um, yeah, that 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 really is, I think, the main thing that one that you know some somebody actually needs to say, keep keep you on track all the time. So no, that's too much literature. No, stop reading that now, and think differently about this think more openly about this yeah don't ask specific questions ask open-ended questions and people might need to go and practice on their friends or their family mm. or their kids even mm. asking these open-ended questions and in fact if if students take the initiative and learn how to interview thoroughly and well, they will benefit enormously um, in their research yep. by being able to listen. Take take a course on how to coach, on how to mentor, how to counsel. All of these professions and activities teach you to listen. And sometimes you need to ask the question and then shut up yep. while the person thinks what they're going to answer. We all have a tendency to jump into the empty space. And and if I just think back at some examples, start gabbling at the poor person and asking <laughs> them a million questions all at the same time. Yep. Ask and then be quiet and let them answer you in their own time. Yeah. 
Prof, I mean, just absolutely outstanding words of wisdom on so many different topics. And maybe just if I can give you a chance to 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 wrap up with any last thoughts, maybe just you you can initially include one or two, you know, resources that uh, from a grounded theory perspective people could engage with, and that I'll provide a link to um, in the show notes of this podcast. And then mm. maybe just quickly do that, and then wrap up with any last thoughts from your side and advice to students out there listening today. Yes, well, having said you need to read, you do. Um, there are some tips for for reading which might help you, um, and I'm telling, telling them to you because they help me enormously. We've actually run out of bookshelf space um, in our home, and uh, I'm not sure, yes, you can see in the background behind me, <laughs> there's some of our bookshelves. But getting online books is, is, is useful because they, they don't take up so much space. But one of the main things that I learned um, to, to get my reading done was audiobooks. And I actually discovered audiobooks. The first one I got was Lord of the and it was on tapes. And there were about 150 tapes, which I played in my car. And it was wonderful because it completely removed all the stress of the traffic and the traffic jams. In fact, I jams because then I could listen to more of my book. And subsequently, I buy audiobooks through um, Google Play, through Google Books. And there are nonfiction books. Um, you know, one of my favorite books is called Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Boy, does that book shake your mind up and teach you how to think about things differently. And there are many books like that. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, one of my favorite ones is Freakonomics. Those guys are so good. And in fact, if you listen to Freakonomics, listen to how they ask questions because they really ask excellent questions and get excellent information out. So you can actually listen to a lot. Um, there, there's also apps that will read PDFs to you. So you can download your articles and you can get the app to read it to you while you're sitting in the traffic. And to, to me, that's just wonderful. When I discovered that, I managed to pack in at least an hour and a half of reading every single day. Made a huge difference. Incredible. So, yeah um okay. and yeah and never stop learning no never, sure never stop learning prof thank you so much i i think let's leave it there i mean this has just been packed with so much wisdom and insight and i just thank you so much for coming on the show and appreciate your time today mm, absolute pleasure and i'll certainly give you the resources to post on the show notes thank you prof take care you too